I grudge them, grudge them on, you know. I threw him a fight for black liberation. And him a one true warrior. Them I want to try to stop him. But them can't stop the man. Them can't stop Raheem Shabazz. That's why anytime me want to listen to revolutionary liberation vibes, me tune into Necessary Blackness Podcast. Me not hear them like a Yaga Yaga podcast them. I be your Necessary Blackness me rock with. Anytime me want your true warrior talking. Peace and power, black family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast. And today, we have a special guest in the building, and his name is William Malik Evans, and he is the founder and president of Neighborhood Benches and co-founder of Never Be Cage, as well as a member of Restorative Roots Collaborative. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome William Malik Evans to the Necessary Blackness Podcast. How are you doing today, King? I'm okay. I'm I'm okay. I'm okay, my brother. You know, I'm focused, staying stick sticking in there, focused, you know. I'm I'm here, man. All right. Now, this has been a very eventful past few days. Actually, me and Malik was able to go out and speak to some young brothers that are on the right side of history and are trying to change their lives around. And I just want to shout those young brothers out from gangsters to growers. And they are in a diversion program to get their life together. Some of them have ran afoul of the law and they'll be given a second chance once they complete this program so they won't have no criminal record. So shout out, man, to those young street soldiers, warriors that are trying to be on the right side of history and trying to get their life together. Now, for those that don't know, neighborhood benches, as y'all can see, I got the apparel on, I got the hat on, I got the t-shirt on. (laughs) Brother Malik, he definitely blessed me with that. And um, he has a movement going on, and this movement is widely respected. It's known throughout the five boroughs of New York City and surrounding states. And now, they know about you in Atlanta, brother. (laughs) They definitely do, right? (laughs) Yeah, they know about you in Atlanta, and the world over is going to know about this brother because he's doing amazing things. So, Malik, a lot of people want to know about you. They may be interested in your story. So tell us about your early childhood and what led you up to being the founder and president of Neighborhood Benches. First, I want to start off with um, letting the individuals know, all the listeners out there, I grew up in the South Bronx, uh, which is one of the poorest congressional districts. And in the South Bronx, you have a community of people who are not only oppressed, but also impacted by various systems. Um, and I was just one of those individuals that happened to grow up in that era. Um, when you talk about the crack epidemic, the heroin epidemic, you know, born in the 70s, growing up in the Andrew Jackson houses in a house with 15 because all of, all of our parents had some type of um, some type of. Um, situation going on, whether it was drug use, whether it was incarceration, whether it was um, violence. Um, so I was just one of the 15 individuals growing up in 14B in the Andrew Jack Jackson houses under my grandmother's roof. 
Um, and, you know, um, growing up in Andrew Jackson houses around that time, um, nothing was pretty. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of drug use. There was a lot of, there was just a little bit of everything. I guess I started to be independent because I saw that my grandmother, she was struggling, you know, and my mom's died by the age of nine. By the time I was nine years old, my mother died. So I saw my grandmother struggling. I wanted to do a little more, mm. you know, and okay. when I started doing a little more, that was me packing bags in the supermarket, sweeping up here in a barbershop. I used to snatch down some of her bees from in front of the um, kitchen and make bees and sell them, you know, to the, um, to the people in the neighborhood, you know, um, but you know, um, one day, one day, and let let me just say say this: like that was doing it for me. Um, I was satisfied just having a cup of milk and some cookies. You know, I was I was I, I was a young boy at the time. Um, but just being able to support my family, help my family, you know, um, and not having to be so much of a burden on my grandmother, packing bags and sweeping up here in the barbershop was definitely good. One day, making a delivery. Until one of the um, buildings that was drug drug infested, which is 301, I got arrested on my way out from making a delivery to someone's house. The way it is set, set up there, two entrance, one front door, one back door, mailboxes um, stationed in the hallway. When the officers raided the building, as I'm coming out the staircase, you know, drugs everywhere, and I was arrested for it. You know, I, I probably stayed on Rikers Island probably for like um, four days at the most. Mm-hmm. The, the case was eventually thrown out. But as a result of my arrest, just from coming from the supermarket to make a delivery for some extra change, a result of that arrest, the, um, I had to be removed from my grandmother's home. Mm. So, you know, um, and at that time, it was it was what you call the um, exclusionary, the, the permanent exclusionary rule where if 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 you're caught with any drugs um on a property you can't live in the projects even after you got dismissed even well at that time yeah yeah even after it was dismissed so it didn't matter the results at all um i was told that i have to leave or the family have to leave yeah i remember they was doing that yeah so 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 you know as a result of that i became homeless and I had to like find ways to eat and sneak in and out of my grandmother's house. But the way my mom was built then, I wasn't trying to bring my family down. Mm. So I eventually just just stayed in the streets. You know, um, I eventually stayed in the street. About a year later, um, um, running around in the street, you know, a fight broke broke out in front of the same building. A gun went off. Um, actually, a rifle went off, ricocheted off the marble of the building, and it and it landed in my neck. Um, so, you know, by the by the age of 15, I caught my first arrest, wrongful arrest. At the age of 16, I got shot in the neck, you know. Um, and after that, you know, it's, it's, it's like all gloves was off, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angry, no mother, father, you know what I'm saying, locked up, grandmother struggling, you know, arrested, shot. You know, it was nothing you can tell me that would make it seem fair. Now, for those that are familiar with Andrew Jackson Projects, um, it's a hell of a project. Right next door, you have Melrose, Cortland Avenue. Shout out to everybody up there. But the infamous building, 301. (laughs) Boy, there's a lot of stories about that building. A lot of arrests come out of that building. And, um, yeah, rest in peace to your grandmother, uh, Miss Jessie. Everybody knew her. 
Um, and when he say 15 kids in one apartment, there was 15 kids in apartment, <laughs> like- you know? But it never looked it like it was that, it, it, it was, it looked it like there was that many, that, that it was a lot. But yeah. not 15, though. Yeah, yeah. Probably even more. Um, because when you start counting everybody else, um, this this is just the kids of the parents that was running in the streets. But when you look at all of the neighbors that used to come come by and stay, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah. it was a lot of us in there. Yeah, I stayed there a couple of nights. I stayed up there. You know? <laughs> right, right, yeah, facts, facts. Yeah, That's a fact. My brother, he was a permanent fixture <laughs> over there. That was the Word, yeah, yeah, now, yeah, man. yeah, yeah. I learned a lot from him too. <laughs> so by the time that you are 15, you um, get arrested, 16, shot in the neck, um, find yourself homeless. Um, so you, you incarcerate, then you get incarcerated. What led to your transformation? You know, because a lot of people don't find their way after going through or having traumatic experience such as yourself. What was that pivotal moment in your life where you said, you know what, this has to end. I'm going to break the generational curse and I am going to be an asset for my community and I'm going to transform and change lives. Was it a, a period of time that it uh, uh, culminated into that or was it just a one day where you said this is it? Yeah, it was just... It was just little bits and pieces of everything. You know, like I'm one of them kids who who father um introduced me to the drug era. Um I was living in a epidemic. Um and different things that I was doing showed me that I was smarter than the average bear, right? Um then I had sisters that was in my ear. I had shams that was in my ear, you know. Um, I had various people that was in my ear encouraging me and telling me, like, I could do better. And remind you, and we had dudes in the neighborhood that wasn't having you standing on corners. They was like, yo, get yourself, get to school. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. go ahead. You know, so it was different things like that over time. Um, it all came together. And and I realized, like, hold on, I could be doing some something better. But, you know, like, even running the streets, like, I was... I was good. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was, I was good. You know, um, I caught a few uh, arrests for like dumb stuff. You know, fighting a lot. But I feel as though everything I was doing, I was good at it to the point where I had to wake up and say, why? Why am I doing this when I know I can do more? And then by having the people in my ear telling me that I can do better, I just say, you know what? Um, one day I just got up. I said, nah, I need to do something different. And I, I started trying to do, do like painting because I, I could draw. So I started to, I started to do like paintings, um, you know, like selling the bees, selling yeah. the paintings. Um, and that alone just encouraged me to, um, think beyond that, um, scope of Andrew Jackson houses. So you released from prison and you're trying to do better. You have this transformative moment and then. The key factor of everything is that you had a support system. Had a support it was system. Shams, your sister, yeah. people in the community. Yeah. And I think that's what's missing in society today. A lot of people don't have support systems. Yeah, yeah. And the people that's around them, nine times out of ten, they're in the underworld and probably doing the same thing mm-hmm. they're doing. Yeah. So how encouraging or supportive can their words be? Yeah. You're doing the same thing as me. Yeah. I appreciate a lot of the acknowledgement as, as well, but like even even to like go back a bit, right? When 
when I got when I had to leave my grandmother home, you know, then I get shot. Um, remind you, I was in art and design at the time. Oh, it's you hard know? to get in there. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and like I filled out for like 14 schools. You can only fill out for like 12, right? Yeah. I filled out for, for 14. I got accepted to all 14. But because I was into art, I selected art and design. Yeah. But I had to drop out of high school because when I got shot, they wouldn't give me an elevator pass. So I'm like, I'm not going to be in school with staples in my neck and my neck cocked to one side and I can't get on the elevator. I got to walk up three flights to class and go come back down steps. Like they was giving me a hard time with like just getting a pass. And, and plus like who, who wanted to be in school with all this anger and stuff. So I eventually left school. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, I left school. Like I emerged to be this person that I shouldn't have um even provided any energy to, but, but I had to learn these things in order to be who I needed to be today. And in the process of me finding Finding out who I am, um, and what type of um, what, what what type of skills and, and gifts I possess, I enrolled in school in college. And during this time, this was like probably like seven years later, I enrolled in the college of New Rochelle, right? Okay. And at, at that time, they was allowing you to get your GED in college de- degree, right? Um, I applied, and then you know, like I, I was on like like public assistance and, and all of that. Um, this was in my twenties, and I, I I didn't signed up for the court officer exam, NYPD. I passed that exam. I, I signed like I signed up for everything that I could pay for with public assistance. And I was getting indoors. I even got in with, with, with child protective services for the interview. Like I was getting into all these different things, which increase my level of understanding of who I am. So eventually as I'm going to um as I'm going to New Rochelle, I asked some old timers like, listen, like how do I get in the door? It was like, listen, if you just sending in resumes, you're not getting in any door. Like you gotta go. So what I started doing was started knocking on doors, like going to volunteer different places. Um and I ended up at the Fortune Society. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and the Fortune Society I you Yeah, you know, like and and they taught me a lot because I was running into so many kids that reminded me of myself. You know, um, so for like seven years, I was an alternative to incarceration counselor. Um, by this time, I didn't finish school. But, you know, it's crazy, right? Because when you're telling your story, you skip a lot. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, so much. it's a lot. so much. So much. But I, I, I want to go back a little, right? Um, one of the key things that you said was when you was in school, they wouldn't give you an elevator pass. Like, how hard is it to have a student that has a disability mm-hmm. to get an elevator pass? And I think that if they would have gave you an elevator pass, that could have changed the course mm-hmm. and the trajectory of your life. Yeah, sure So they, what they did in return is create a barrier you dropped out of school, and then you went a different route. Yeah. So speaking about barriers, right? And I know you helped a lot of individuals um, with reentry, and I'm mm-hmm. big on reentry. Every year is reentry month, and we do something here in Atlanta. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. due to COVID nineteen, we haven't been able to do anything. So, in your humble opinion, what do you believe is the number one barrier for reentry for our returning citizens that? was formerly incarcerated, and what can be done to help them? One of the barriers for coming home um, is the lack of support from your own neighborhood. Um, the, the resistance 
you get for being incarcerated. Um, and I believe if you tap into that individual and find out what it is they may be good at, and you try to um, hone in on those skills, they will see that you're acknowledging the fact that they have some type of skill, some type of gift they're bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. Um, And they will be motivated to do more and to increase that level of understanding for what it is that they possess. Um, I know a lot of places they have this thing that you call credible messengers, right? Um, then you also have restorative, um, restorative practitioners. Um, those are two forms of, of healing um, that you can, you can be trained on, but also craft into your own type of, your, your, your own model. You, you, you can craft your own model out of that as far as when you're talking about mentoring. Um, but I believe one of the barriers is the lack of support and a lack of understanding of who that individual may be at the time of arrest and who that person developed um, while, while on the inside as they're returning home. Lack of support. Without support, there's really not much an individual could do because you forever living with that stigma of being incarcerated and having a criminal record. We talked about you going to jail, you being shot. There's another side to your story where um, you was accused of having a gun, mm-hmm. and you did what 99.9% of individuals that find themselves in similar situations don't do. You actually knew you wasn't guilty, and you went to trial, mm-hmm. and you was uh, victorious in that. Do you want to tell us? Tell us a little bit about that uh, situation. Yeah, so so during the time when I was in undergrad school, remind you, I just told you about everything that I went through, um, and I got back into um, I got back into school through college. The college of New Rochelle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so during the time I was in the college of New Rochelle, I believe I was in my third year. Um, it was a f- four year college. I was in my third year. I had all these other things going on, and I was arrested while in Harlem for a gun. By the 32nd precinct, um, officers unaware of what was going on prior to them um, arriving, um, there was plainclothes officers who interrupted a a fight um, and arrested a few people and so on and so forth. Um, But in that process of of these undercovers um, rolling into the neighborhood, which I also facilitated a program, they ran up on individuals including me, told me to come over. I was arrested. I was taken to the precinct. I wrote a statement in regards to um, in regards to what was going on with me and where where the gun was going. I, I mentioned the, the the gun buyback program and all that. I, I did all of this in my statement um, because they was trying to um, trying to accuse me of having possession of a weapon with the intent to cause harm to someone else, um, and I had to like reiterate to them like who I am, what I do, um, and they disregarded all of that. Um, I ended up going to the grand jury. Um, the grand jury questioned me, questioned the officers, questioned me again, questioned the officers again. Um, and I eventually found out that they left out so much, including a statement that I've um, that I've written while in their custody, um, and that led me to be indicted. So once I got indicted, I had to either cop out, which means take the amount of time or I had to, or I had was to your, go to trial. What was your initial offer? 
my initial offer was I believe um two to five or or like one to three, one and a half to three. Mm-hmm. I believe that was my initial offer offer. But after being indicted, well, at my initial offer, my bail was thirty five hundred, including um the one and a half to three. After I got indicted based on their per- per- perjury, I had it. I had I had went to Supreme Court because I was indicted, and my bail went up to seventy five hundred. Mm-hmm. And my now time would would be three three to seven. Yeah, the stakes the stakes go up yeah, after you get yeah, indicted. Yeah. And even in the the legal system, uh, there's a joke amongst lawyers, prosecutors, that every and anybody can get indicted. You can indict a ham sandwich. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, yeah. It, it is a joke amongst legal circles that mm-hmm. uh, anyone can get indicted. And unfortunately, when you do get indicted, it's almost like the presumption of innocence is yeah. out the door. Yeah, yeah. And that's where a lot of people take a plea. Mm-hmm. But you, being the black man that you are, the was, king that you are, <laughs> I wasn't with you it. know, being a courageous warrior fighter, knew that you did not commit this crime and you wasn't going to take what they was giving you. Not at all. So you went to trial. Let's talk I, about that, I went brother. to trial. I went to trial. But first, first let me say that my motivation to go to trial was my time on Rikers Island. As I started listening to different brothers talk about um, how okay they were with taking the time and just copping out, like it was just normal for them. Um, That alone, I said, nah, there's no way in the world I could just sit here and let you give me something. I said, 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 I'm not taking anything. You have to give it to me. So at that point is when I made up my mind to go to trial. Um, And, you know... um, the trial, well, I was incarcerated for 11 months, four days in total. Um, and I believe the trial, the trial process took about like six months. Um, I had a mistrial at one point because two of the officers who, who claimed to have stopped me prior to my arrest um, supposed to have come in and take the stand. And, you know, it was all over the news. Um, they wound up coming from a party, drinking and driving, the two officers- Breaking the law. Break, break, breaking the law. Breaking the law. Let me say that one more time. Breaking the law, drinking and driving. Who's to say they wasn't drunk when they approached you? Yeah, and, but on top of that, they never approached me. They never approached me. So, so they, was about to, they was about to go in front of the judge and perjure themselves, mm. right? Um, the two officers died in the car crash. Karma. And injured three females- that was um that that they was transporting from I guess from the party or club lounge to their home or wherever, and they sued them. It, it was on the news and, and everything. So as a result of that, I had a mistrial. You know, like I don't wish death on anyone, but all I could think about at that time is like, damn, we lost two lives, but then thinking they was gonna lie on me and and court. You know, um, remind you, I just had a son too. I just had a son during that time. So my son at the time of the arrest was probably like 10 days old, you know, wow. and and they was about to take my life away, you know, um, and place me with a with a criminal record. Um, it, it was just so much going on in my mind at that time. I didn't have the time to even mourn for them or feel sorry for them, um, not the way I would normally do if I was out in society. 
I was looking at it like these officers was going to lie on me. Um, and just to know that they was about to come in and perjure themselves and then die in the die in the process. I think they supposed to come to take the stand probably like two days two days after, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe a day after. Um, but as a result of that incident, um, I had a mistrial. So I had to go back in front of a judge all over again, do everything all over again, the hearings and everything. Um, good side to that is that everything that was mentioned in the first hearings contradicted everything that took place in the second hearings. So they that's was, they was what, trying to get their lie together. They was trying to get it together and they they they, they couldn't. So everything that the detectives and everybody was saying in that first trial was definitely not the same when they said in a second um, um, hearings, and the judges picked up on that. But I had one judge. So you had a you had a, a trial by a judge or a jury? A jury. Okay. A jury trial. I, I definitely picked the jury yeah, trial. You don't want to do the judge. Yeah. I, Unless I you're wanna, police. No. I, I had... <laughs> what made me not want uh, a judge on, on trial is because... At the time, I had Carol Berkman, Ooh. and she was like, she she laughed at me in court based on me talking about the buyback program, and um, she was just doing me dirty. Like she turned down my 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 bail and said that I need a property that was way more than seventy five hundred dollars. Um, and remind you, I wasn't working. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I was going to school. You know, um, didn't have a criminal conviction record. You know, um, but she was willing to allow me to sit up in there. Um, so that's why I picked. A jury trial. Yeah, if you don't know about Carol, what is it, Beckman? Berkman. Berkman. It's <laughs> Carol Berkman or, or Judge Roughwack. <laughs> These are notorious judges. Solomon. Right? Yeah, yeah so, Solomon so that comes up out of uh, New York City that are legendary. Like their names will be known f- for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they have a story uh, of Judge Roughwax. Yeah. Where he told the defendant, come here, let me show you something. You see that little plant right there that's growing? Uh, that, that's going that's that's to be a tree when you get, <laughs> you out, get out of jail. Yeah. You yeah. know, he, told, he, he was just so harsh with his sentencing. He told one individual that your parole officer is not even born yet. Yeah, yeah, they was doing him dirty. I mean, yeah. just just think, it, it was one judge that I told did this young dude, not even young. He he was probably at my age at the time. He told him to count the holes that his shoelaces need to go through, and that's how many that's that's how many years he gave him. Dude came back crying, rough, tough dude, and everything came back crying because he he was like the judge just gave him like 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 twenty years or something like that. And it was and it was only be it, it was for like petty stuff. You know? That would have been the. First day I couldn't account. I'd be like, Your Honor, I think I got two holes in my shoes. <laughs> they had me nervous because I'm like, I'm like, hold on, if they, if they doing this to them, man, I made yeah, <laughs> I, I, I it throwing a towel. I done seen it all, but you know what? Let me point this out, right? We're talking about police corruption. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Just judges using their discretion to give an enormous amount of time to those that they dis- that they deem undesirable. Because they're black, because they're poor, because they come from an impoverished neighborhood. But the real thing is this. The 32nd precinct, this is where mm. cops come from. Yeah. That accosted you, perjured themselves in court. That's a notorious precinct in Harlem. And to this day, they have more complaints of corruption and police brutality than any other precinct in the entire New York City. And that's terrible. 
Um, they had allegations. Is one former officer? Uh, I think she's a black sister. She looks black in the picture. Um, accused them of rape. Mm. Fellow officers. Wow. There's um, you know, y'all got to do y'all history, man. The seventy second precinct. You know, what I mean, the thirty, the the. What they call them, the Dirty 30, uh-huh. the 44th precinct. These are notorious precincts. Yeah, yeah. You know, they got movies based on these uh, precincts and these officers and, and the, the lives that they told and the lives that have been stolen from them. And I think you illustrated a good point because you was like, my son was just born. Yeah. My son was only 10 years old. Nah, no, 10 days. I mean, 10 days old. Yeah. So- this this is just not injustice for you. It's your family. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you was living in a household with 15 other individuals. Mm-hmm. So they're affected. Yeah. And um, it's a shame, man. But the good thing is that you came out on the other side, you know, stronger than yeah. ever. You were doing the work. You're giving back to the community. You have your organization, Neighborhood Benches, which mm-hmm. you are the founder and president of. Yeah. So in our last few minutes, I want you to talk about your organization, let people know the work you're doing, the impact it's having in the neighborhood. And um, I want you to tell the recent story of an incident that happened recently that I seen on your IG, the young brother that passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, you told me yeah, about it yeah. and how it almost uh, illustrates your life mm-hmm. and how you can relate to that. I know that's yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do it because it's very important. So, so as you know, I'm the founder and president of Neighborhood Benches. So, Neighborhood Benches was designed with the idea that there are also other leaders out there, um, especially leaders that's living in public housing. Um, I realized that the way I was molded and shaped it into this, um, into this hard. Um, rough, um, educated individual, it came to me by the way of living in Andrew Jackson houses. Mm-hmm. But I also know along that path, it was other people that was there that wasn't even family that was tapping me on my shoulder, telling me like, listen, this is what you need to do. So when you think about the movie Slumdog Millionaires, um, the way the young boy um, um, played the game and he's able to, to, to connect all these questions to different parts of his life, that's the way I moved through college mm-hmm. through undergrad and I knew that if I designed something that that's that's similar to the way I to, to the way I was raised the way I grew up the way I encountered other people that I could also pull other individuals out of this dark hole so the idea of neighborhood benches is a unique strategic type of leadership development program where we're actually walking into some of these hard harder to reach neighborhoods like the projects and we're selecting individuals that we know that have the potential to lead that may be doing something negative and showing them the ropes and increasing their understanding about who they are um, and what they can be um, because we know those are also the same individuals leading young people to do negative as well as positive things but let's see how we can increase the positive things and have you be represented as a leader in your neighborhood so we started going around to different neighborhoods to seek out these individuals with the uh, with the support of tenant associations and other um, other adult leaders in the neighborhood we started showing them how to design programs around who they are and what got them from point A to point B um, and so, so far it's been successful. Um, 
out in the development where I'm at, where I grew up at Andrew Jackson houses, um, just to give you that, that short piece of the story to like tie in this is that there was a young boy by the name of um, Brandon Hendricks who was shot in the neck while at a barbecue uptown in the Bronx. And just to pause for a minute, you were shot in the neck. And I was shot in the neck. So I was re- I was able to relate to, to his story in multiple ways because not only did we have a program in his school that's all the way by Bronx River, which is like on the other side of the Bronx the year before, but he also lived in the building where we operate programs from in the Marvel Senior Air Right Houses. Mm. In addition, all of the students that's enrolled to our program was friends of his. Wow. So they was impacted. Six degrees of separation. You you feel me? Yeah. So so because we was already planted um in the development and we already planted the seeds in these young boys um um um, um lifestyle, we was able to support them with healing. Um so so support the the mother, support the other neighbors. But if you looked at what what transpired and how they mourned. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of kids, like over 500 kids came out from different schools, different neighborhoods on the basketball court of Andrew Jackson houses to light a candle and show them love. Like if you ever see the video, you will see it. it, I mean, kids came out from like two, from probably like 12 o'clock in the afternoon all the way to like three o'clock in the morning. They was out there lighting up candles morning for him. Um, They also do a basketball tournament in his his, his name. No, and and the majority of our students, if not all, was a part of that process. You know, um, but just to know that we was able to support them before this incident took, took place and just hear stories about what they had to go through just being a 22-year-old or 20-year-old or 18-year-old that alone inspired me to continue to do this work. And let the record reflect, he was um, killed by um, a straight bullet. A straight at bullet. A he was not out there um, participating in the underworld yeah. or doing anything and illegal. He just graduated a week before and had multiple scholarships to attend college, basketball, to play wow. ball in wow. school. Wow. And his life was taken from that. Um, and that alone, you know, just to know that it's a young boy, he got killed, you know, and there's so, so many others who are, who, 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 who was killed out there, but just to know that he got hit in the neck and I know I got hit in the neck at the same age, damn near. And you, you was know? able to live. And I was able to live, you know. Um, so, 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 so I know the pain, but I don't know what it feels like to lose my life, yeah. you know. Um, but, 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 I'm glad I came back to to Andrew Jackson Houses to do this work because that's a prime example of what can happen if we don't step step up. Hell of a story, hell of a story, Malik, man. I, I take my hat off to you. Um, you are definitely an inspiration to all those young brothers and all those young sisters that is living in the South Bronx, whether Melrose Projects, Cortland, Marsania, um, Andrew Jackson's Patterson Projects. Mm-hmm. Man, that's my own stuff. Haven. 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 Vietnam. We are Vietnam. Like, we, I mean, I mean, we've been so successful. We, we have been so, so successful at this, this this model where we've been all over the Bronx, different places in Manhattan, some spots in Brooklyn, um, um, in Queens. Um, and just to know that we have foundations supporting our work, you know. Speaking of support, man, I want to get our Necessary Blackness podcast uh, listeners behind you. 
I want y'all to support this brother. Um, if anybody's interested in donations or just coming out, volunteering, being a part of the program, or getting one of their kids in the program, how can they contact you on your social media? And anyone who feel the need to develop similar models in your own neighborhood, in your own state, um, you could contact us. First, you need to um, go to our webpage and see our webpage, neighborhoodbenches.org. Mm-hmm. Which which highlights how we develop individual leaders and neighborhoodventures.info will show you how we change a narrative in neighborhoods and also shift a whole community. Um so it's neighborhoodbenches.org for the individual development, neighborhoodbenches.info for a community the the development. Um but you could find us, you could you could see all of our work on Instagram, neighborhood benches, mm-hmm. LinkedIn, neighborhood benches, so Facebook, Facebook neighborhood benches. You on Twitter? I'm on Twitter as Benches Inc., okay. um, but it's also Neighborhood Benches. Um, so, so yeah, anytime you punch in Neighborhood Benches, if I'm if I'm not mistaken from what I witnessed, will pop up. That's what's up, man. And I thank you for coming through. It's your first time in Atlanta that you came and seen me. <laughs> you done been here three, four times before, man. Come on, man. Yeah, listen, man. You, you got to come through, man. Gotta- I appreciate you, man. You took me out to speak to the young brothers, man. Yeah. And that's important, you know. And yeah, the sister's man, also out of the do, city. Man. So just, you know, that, that was You do it dope. more than me. Ah, you know, man. Every, you're doing every, a lot. Every, every moment I get, I, I definitely try to go out there and speak to the young brothers because we have to be the inspiration for them. We have to show them guidance and leadership and have them look up to us mm-hmm. and know that it's nothing that we are doing that they, they can't cannot do. do. You're right. So we're the holders and keepers of our self-predicament, and it's up to us. And I don't mind. I, I, I love helping individuals, and I will continue to do that. And I want each and every one of you that are listening to my voice to do the same thing. So I'm going to conclude this podcast. Peace and blessings, family. Make sure you go to the website, Elementary Genocide, and get Elementary Genocide, the school to prison pipeline, Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, Elementary Genocide 3, Academic Holocaust, and make sure you also... Go to Wingy Apparel and cop that gear. Peace and Black Power family. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Peace.